good news comes to us today from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Listen for the word of God. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews living in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's amazing deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Most of us who are believers have remembered some time or place in our lives that we were transformed from what we were before to what we became after. In southern stereotypical narrative, for men at least, it sounds something like I was a whiskey-drinking, carousing, gambling, no-good son of a gun. But then I found Jesus Christ, and I became uh, a non-drinker, well, mostly, uh, uh, and, and no longer a low-down son of a gun, but a little higher up son of God. These transformative moments for us, as it happened also to Paul, help us see our lives in a new perspective. Again, what we were before to what we are now. And I suggest to us that these moments don't just come once in our life, although there may be one predominant moment but they come continuously for, as Paul says, we are being transformed every day by the power of the Holy Spirit. This was true for those disciples in our story today. Before Pentecost, as we remember, they were timid, afraid. Peter denied Jesus three times. They all left 
Jesus at the cross. They never really understood who Jesus was. They fought for the highest positions of leadership when they finally got to heaven. They thought the whole thing was about power, not Holy Spirit power. But after, something transformed them. They were gathered together in the upper room, 120 of them, the text says, And they had been promised by Jesus that something would come from above and clothe them in power. He had met with them before his ascension and said to them, Wait there in Jerusalem, and I will send to you the Holy Spirit. And so there they waited. Jesus had been resurrected and had appeared to them over 40 days in surprising ways completely perplexing them about who is this new resurrected Christ who keeps showing up in times and places we do not expect. And in the end, before his ascension, as I said, he challenged and charged them to go back to Jerusalem and wait for that which I will send you. And the text says that they did. They were full of joy as they danced their way back from the Mount of Ascension to Jerusalem to the upper room where Jesus had left them before on that Thursday of his Passion Week, washing their feet and offering to them the bread and the wine of his presence. For ten days they waited. The text says that they prayed. Of course they did. They did some business. They were down to eleven apostles, remember Judas. They had to find a twelfth one, and so they nominated two people in good Presbyterian order, and uh, in unlike good Presbyterian order, they basically flipped a coin to see which one would get it. It ended up heads for Matthias. Well, it says they cast lots, but it's the same thing. And Peter preached a little, foreshadowing the incredible preaching that he would undertake after the transformative moment of the coming of the Holy Spirit. They had been changed, of course, by Jesus over time, by his teaching and his preaching and his incredible persona, but they had not yet been fully transformed until that spirit came. So they waited and prayed and listened. I suspect they wondered, what will it be like when it comes? Will it hurt? Will it tingle? Jesus did say something about fire. Should we be afraid? And then it happened. The rush of a mighty wind, the text says, and it was a gale force breath of God that was blowing and filling up their room. Tongues rested on them, divided tongues, which simply means that they were now all filled with words of praise, ecstatic words of praise and song. They couldn't stop proclaiming God's incredible grace and love. It just flowed out of their mouths. And not only did it flow out of their mouths, it came out of their bodies as they made their way out of that room into the streets of Jerusalem, overflowing with the enthusiasm of the presence of God made real in the power of the Spirit. The story says that all the people gathered around them hearing this and in listening to them speaking in all their different languages, they were hearing their own language spoken 
even though they were from all over the map and even from different parts of history, as it's listed, the Medes, the Parthians, all of, several of those different countries had now gone ex- extinct historically. But the writer of Acts, Luke, brings them back up because Luke wants us to see that all of those who had come before were now gathered hearing this word from those 120 disciples. For Presbyterians, this eagerly over-enthusiastic experience of those disciples makes us real anxious. We who like things decently and in order, accused of being the frozen chosen, who have trouble even applauding in church, are not real sure about this overflowing enthusiasm. My Lord, are they going to make us raise our hands? And who knows what might come out of our mouths? It upsets the structure and the control of things, so we're a little antsy. For us, over-enthusiasm looks like a raised eyebrow. For the disciples, it set them free. Remember, those disciples were just like us. They, too, were timid and self-conscious, even the most extroverted ones. But in this moment, something inspired them. We say it's the power of the Spirit It brought to them courage and strength and joy. They found peace of mind. Their hearts were overflowing in gratitude. They found their own voice to proclaim God's goodness and God's grace and God's truth as as, as Christ was true and also the way for them. They found a new way of being and connecting to each other. For them, this was the transformative moment that changed their lives. Yet they were not all on the same page. This is the whole point of this story in the book of Acts. They were not all on the same page. They did not all agree on every single thing going on in the church. They were from all over the world, different nationalities, different sects, different cults, not quite as many as the 3,600 different denominations that Protestantism has now, but there were plenty of differences of opinion. Yet the story tells us that they all heard the word of God being proclaimed in different languages, but they understood it. Therefore, they were now in unity together, this community empowered by the Spirit that brought them together. Acts wants us to see that it is the power of the Holy Spirit that is the ground of true community. Before the Spirit came, there was alienation and separation, discord and disagreement and conflict. When the Spirit came, there was joy and unity, peace, forgiveness, and courage. All the tribes. How could this be, they wondered? What does this mean? 
There were a few skeptics, of course, as always, those naysayers. Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. They're full of new wine. But generally, the rest of Jerusalem were united by this power of something that could be only described as being Christ-like. This is what it means to be caught up by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even though today we know that it is fashionable to say that we are spiritual but not religious, I think that's a new age cop-out. To say that is to say that I have this now private feeling or experience or emotion, this individual sense of the spirit of God or the higher power or the force, that I am spiritual and I see spiritual things and I feel spiritual ways, but it is also to say that I'm not religious, which is to say that I'm not in a community of greater people than I am. I'm not held to a to an understanding or a basis of behavior or faith that's greater than my own. I'm no longer connected to uh, what we would call a church in our parlance, and therefore I don't, I don't have any cost to pay. It's perfect for a commitment-phobic world. The fact is that once we are brought into relationship, things get sticky. The fact is that everyone is spiritual. Every single living thing is spiritual. To say I am spiritual but not religious is simply to say I'm alive. Because you see the word for spirit in Greek is the same word for breath. God's breath blown into us is the source of life. To say that I'm spiritual is to say that I'm breathing. Everything that breathes is spiritual. We are inspired by the breath of God. When we die, we expire. While we live, we are in respiration. The same word. To say we're spiritual means nothing other than we're walking, eating, and talking. But to say that we are wholly spiritual is to say something else entirely different. We are, someone said, not bodies that have a spirit, but spirits that have a body. We are, in essence, you see, created by the Spirit of God. When God took that handful of dirt and ground and molded it into the first human being, Adam, which means dirt, God blew breath into him, and voila, life was born. And when we die, as the Chinese proverb goes, we become God's in-breath. God breathes us back in. I love that. It's, it's a return to the source When we are moved by this source, this spirit, we are moved and transformed into the beings that we were created to be, which at its fullest form looks like Jesus Christ. Now, all of us, I think, are deeply wanting to be moved in our lives. We live lives, as someone said, of quiet desperation, 
there seems to be this general malaise and indifference across the land. And I suspect you are here today hoping that something will, in fact, move you and transform you to a new place in your life. If not, hold on to your seats. Because this is the whole point of life. It's to continue to move and be changed and transformed into the being that we were meant to be again like Christ. We all know what it means to be inspired by someone. That is to say that their charisma, their power, their sense of uh, uh, truth, uh, their uh, incredible leadership inspires us to want to be like them. When I first went into ministry, uh, I thought I had to be just like my pastor, Lou Patrick, who I idolized and worshipped, I thought, as the greatest preacher in the world. And I wanted to be like him. And so the first time I got to preach at seminary, our little five-minute preaching stint, I, I pulled out the Bible to try to read the text just like Lou Patrick read the text. It was a miserable failure. In, in wanting to be like him, I became completely unlike myself. That is not what it means to be inspired by someone. Last summer in Paris, when Anita and I were there on sabbatical, we went to Musée d'Orsay for an exhibition by Van Gogh. And just like the French, they had to also insert this existential angst into the midst of it as if Van Gogh doesn't have enough existential angst in and of himself and and uh, partnered uh, Van Gogh's exhibition with this philosopher artist actor named Autal who was in a mental institution for nine years but when he came out he had this moment of epiphany that Van Gogh's suicide was not caused by his insanity, but was instead caused by society's inability to accept Van Gogh's incredible genius. So we went to the exhibit. It was late in the morning, 11 o'clock. It was packed. There were 40 Van Gogh paintings from all over the world. You're hustling and moving people around. I'm trying to get the spirit of this artist, uh, and it was hard with all the people there. We... We made our way around. Uh, It was moving, but not transformational for me. Um, We went on our trip some more. Two weeks later, we came back to Paris. I went back to the exhibit in the afternoon. Uh, There were far less people there. Uh, I got to spend time with these paintings. I wanted to know the spirit of it. I wanted to be inspired by this incredible power. As I made my way around the rooms with the paintings, uh, with all the time I needed, I found my way coming around to the end, and all of a sudden I looked up, and there was this watercolor, the only watercolor in the whole exhibit. It was, it was simple. It was not bright and flashy like most of Van Gogh's paintings, and I only mean that in the good sense. It did not have all the swirls and squiggles. It, it was a watercolor, as I remember, of a, a man with a spade digging a hole. And for some reason, at that moment, I looked at that watercolor and I was completely 
overcome with emotion. I started weeping. I was weeping so hard that I had basically lost control. I worked my way out of the exhibit, out of Musée d'Orsay completely. People looking at me like, what's wrong with him? I made my way out on the sidewalk, and for the next 10 blocks back to our hotel room, I wept like a child in a way I had not wept for 50 years. To this day, I still cannot tell you why. Maybe it was the beauty of it, certainly. Maybe it was the sense of tragedy knowing Van Gogh's life. Maybe it was my own grief spilling out. Maybe it was, maybe they were tears of joy, both. I just know that I had been inspired in a way that I did not expect, and I had been moved to a place I had no idea I was going to go. Friends, that is just one grain of sand compared to the incredible movement of the Spirit of God in our lives that can come into us and transform us in ways that we have no idea will change us. And what we need to do to have that is to listen, to listen. I was in a conversation with someone just a week or so ago who was not happy with me. And, and as he's laying it on me, chapter after chapter after chapter of why he is so angry, my instinct was to defend myself. My instinct was to best him in the conversation. My instinct was to change his mind. But for some reason greater than me, the Holy Spirit rested enough with me to help me know that what I needed to do was keep my mouth shut and listen to him. And as I did, I began to hear him, to understand where he was coming from. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul writes in Galatians that when the Holy Spirit is not there... Galatians 5, it causes dissensions and conceit and jealousy and unbridled sexuality and strife and quarrels and factions and enviness and drunkenness and, as he sums it up, things like these. And then he turns it around and says, but when the Holy Spirit is present, the fruits of the Spirit are present Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those nine fruits all do the same thing. They keep us together in relationship. They do not split us apart. And when we practice those fruits by the power of the Spirit, we continue to connect in ways we do not expect. Self-control? Gentleness? Peace? Patience? They're disciplines. They're virtues that come to us and hold us accountable. They're our GPS system for what we're called to look like when finally embraced and empowered and inspired by the Spirit. 
whether the church is fractured by the righteous right or the licentious left. That's a great line, by the way. We still all wait to be transformed again by the power of the Spirit that brings us together with one common cause. That is to say that what we stand on is not our political agenda, our personal agenda, but instead the power of the Spirit of God. And as long as we are standing together there, nothing will separate us. Every single day, we have those moments and opportunities before us to leave or stay, to love or to dismiss someone, to forgive or not, to be kind or ugly. It's always before us, those transformative moments. It comes when we're at risk, when we're afraid, when we're listening, when we're waiting, when we're out of control, when we're unnerved, and when we're facing something unpredictable. It comes when we're ready, and it will blow. It will blow. It will blow and move us still. Come, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen.